0: Though I first recognized my need for a savior when I was a child, it wasn't until I was an adult that I addressed what I've learned to ignore so well, what I now refer to as the elephant in the room of my soul. I'd finally realized that I didn't trust God and in fact, I hated him. It was the middle of the night and my forever patient husband, who's so compassionate, held me as I let God know just how much I hated him how evil I thought he was, and that he should definitely not be trusted. This was a very inconvenient truth to realize, especially because I was a pastor at the time. Not sure if Johnny would quickly relieve me of all of my pastoral responsibilities or not, the words he spoke to me through my intense sobs of pain and anger profoundly ministered to me. Although I could share with you the circumstances that surfaced around my trust issues with God, the details really aren't necessary. We've all gone through, or will go through, a detailed, tailor-made process designed to push every control button we may have if we've ever expressed any desire to God to grow spiritually. I'll just put it this way. I was put in a position in which I needed to trust God in a new way, And that sent shockwaves through me all the way back to a time of such deep pain and disappointment that I finally had to be honest with God. If you've never gone to that dreaded place yourself, I can tell you it's actually better than you can imagine. There's so much freedom and new intimacy with God in it. I found that God can take it and that I'm not too complicated for him. The words my husband shared with me that night helped me feel a closeness to Jesus that I'd never felt before. Johnny reminded me that as Jesus was dying on the cross, fully God, yet limited to the same flesh as we are, he also doubted the goodness of our Father. Johnny quoted Psalm 22, 1, which Jesus said on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even Jesus, who was so close to God, wrongly assumed in the moment of his testing that God was far away. And David, who originally expressed that in Psalms, had a pattern of honesty with God throughout his life about what he really felt, something I feel that most believers in our generation still need to learn. God already knows what we're struggling with, of course, He does. But for our own sake, we must determine to tear down everything that hinders love. For those who find the grace to embrace the path that all Reformers must walk, you will be amazed at how intricately your personal place of trust in God is related to the biggest picture of all, the kingdom of God established on earth. Johnny reminded me that as Jesus was dying on the cross, Fully God, yet limited to the same flesh that we are, he also doubted the goodness of our Father. Jesus quoted on the cross Psalm 22, 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even Jesus, who was so close to God, wrongly perceived God in that moment of testing. And David, who originally expressed the feeling of that psalm, showed a pattern of honesty with God throughout his life about what he really felt something I think most believers in our generation still need to learn. God already knows what we're struggling with, of course, but for our own sake, we must determine to tear down everything that hinders love. For those who find the grace to embrace the path that all Reformers must walk, you'll be amazed at how intricately your personal place of trust in God is related to the biggest picture of all— the kingdom of God established on earth. I've always thought that I would just leave the end times to those who have time to study all those charts. All I cared about was doing what I'm supposed to do until I die or until Christ returns. Explanations about the end times seem so confusing anyway. But I have to admit that after hearing Johnny preach more times than I can recall on how Christians are called to bring the solutions of heaven to the problems in our nations through all seven areas of culture, I began to wonder how this is all going to play out. What will the end result be? What exactly are we working towards here? What is this war that we were born into actually over? And how will we know when it's been won? When I was finally able to get honest with God and allow him to talk to me about my pain and my disappointments. I understood our role as a generation in the end times more than I thought possible. I've discovered that the seven mountain revelation is more relevant to us than nearly anything else else I've ever heard preached before. Through my personal breakthrough with the Lord, he began to unfold to me some truths that I think will help you be even more effective in bringing change to the areas of culture that you're passionate about. We've all heard the story of the fateful day when Adam and Eve ate of the one tree that God told them not to eat from, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In that moment in time, the ones who had walked so intimately with God and knew Him face to face with no guilt, no shame or fear, were suddenly no better off than all the rest of us trying to figure out how to relate to our God. They knew how to be intimate with Him, yet still they felt distant from Him, distant enough to hide and look for a way to cover themselves. The fruit of that tree was obviously supernatural and when eaten, it supernaturally changed their DNA and that of all humans after them. That change gave them, and now us, the ability to question if something or someone is good or evil, and more specifically to question if God is good or evil. I know it was sin that separated Adam and Eve from God, but I think there's more to what happened in the Garden of Eden than we first might think. My theory is that most humans believe in their core that God actually exists, but we aren't so sure that He's good. We doubt His goodness and how much He really cares about us. We wonder if He cares about the things that we care about. Johnny says it this way, On the day they ate of that tree, they began to judge God. So my question to God became, Why did you give them access to the tree if the results would be so horrific? Why allow us to get into a position of such doubt that we would undermine our ability to trust you and therefore lose our intimacy with you? As I asked this question, God began to speak to me about relationships and how in order for true intimacy to happen, there must be a mutual voluntary loss of control. Now, what I mean by loss of control is the reality we experience when circumstances remind us that we ultimately can't control anything. We forget that God has also voluntarily limited himself to the same reality as it relates to us. In order for true intimacy to exist, both people must choose to give the other the option to disappoint them. Incredible risk, brings the potential for incredible trust, which then produces the possibility for real intimacy. You can't have intimacy without trust, and you can't have trust without both people experiencing loss of control. In order to ultimately have the intimacy that God desired to have with His sons and daughters, He had to give up some significant control by giving us the option to sin eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, achieving the ability to question his true nature and his goodness. So all this fuss is over God's desire to be close to his creation in a way we'll probably only really understand when we see him face to face. As we live this life, it becomes necessary to resolve this inner doubt over the goodness of God. And that can only happen as we realize this. Because of that little DNA glitch that happened in the garden, these brains are wired to think that we can correctly perceive whether God is good or not based on the circumstances that we're going through. But the goodness of the Lord can only be tasted of and seen by intimacy in the spiritual realm because God is spirit. Like Jesus' limitation, perceiving His Father's distance, when in reality, God couldn't have been more proud of His only perfect Son laying His life down, we too cannot correctly perceive God's heart towards us from this earthly vessel's fallen way of perceiving. We can be honest about the feelings of doubt, but as Jesus expressed in His final words on earth, on the cross, we must resolve to trust God like Jesus did when he said, "'Into your hands I commit my spirit.'" In other words, I trust you. Let's think about the story of Joseph for a moment. Remember, he was the one who was given a coat of many colors from his father, only then to be hated and betrayed by all of his brothers. He was eventually sold as a slave, and after years of trials, he ended up falsely accused and in prison. That's when the Pharaoh of Egypt at that time had a dream that no one could interpret. Joseph ends up using his spiritual gift to interpret the dream, telling Pharaoh they would have a catastrophic famine. But the amazing part wasn't even that. Joseph, like all of us, went through a lifetime of circumstances that could have easily caused him to believe God didn't care about him. So he especially wouldn't care about saving the world from famine. But not only did Joseph correctly interpret the dream, he supernaturally knew the solution. After all he'd been through, Joseph still carried within himself the conviction that God cares. Joseph's heart of trust toward God tied into his eventual task of saving the world. As he did with Joseph, God wants to use your intimacy with him and your personal conviction that his true character is good to save our world. Remember in Matthew 25 when Jesus describes how one day all the nations will be gathered before him and he'll separate them like sheep from goats? He goes on to tell the righteous sheep nations that will be delineated from the goat nations based on whether they gave him food and drink when he was hungry and thirsty, when they took Jesus in when he was a stranger, clothed him when he was naked, visited him when he was sick, and came to see him in prison. Then they will ask, when were you hungry or thirsty? When were you a stranger or naked? And Jesus will say in answer, "Inasmuch as as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. Basically, Jesus is equating himself With the least of these. There's so much more to this passage, but the main point I want to help you see in a new light is this. More than God's giving us some to do list for the end times, He's giving us a big hint that He's good. His heart is so on our side that He identifies Himself with the most needy among us. He also gives us a clue about what the war is really about. The war is not about who can perform good deeds the best. Too many other scriptures clarify that salvation is not from works. The war is not about God needing to defeat Satan because that's already happened. It's not even over how many souls will be saved. I believe the war is over the truth of who God really is. His true nature will be displayed through the righteous, compassionate acts of Josephs and Josephines, who, because they trust their God, endure the journey from dreams of destiny through seasons of what seem like demotions and unfair prison sentences to the reality of God supernaturally placing them into positions of influence and service in order to save our world and receive His kingdom. Now, back to the end-time description in Matthew. It reveals that God cares way more than we think He does. This is so important to get because we have an innate tendency in us to think at least subconsciously, why care more than God does? The problem is that we have misjudged how much He actually cares and what He cares about. He says it so plainly here. He cares about even the least among us. That's how good and righteous He really is. And if we don't know that about Him, How will we ever correctly portray that to the world? Our life circumstances and our interpretation of them have misled all of us into wrong beliefs about God's true heart. So the ultimate expression of his people must be to restore back to the nations the reality of his goodness. But there's more. This God who desires unhindered communion with us has an enemy, and that enemy is so pitiful He's no match between him and God. So what does an enemy do to someone he loathes so deeply, but he cannot touch? He goes after the object of God's affection, you and me. And how do you bring pain to a perfect father's heart? Make his children believe his heart towards them is evil rather than good. Make them believe lies about his true nature and character and convince them that he can't be trusted make them believe it on an individual level to such a degree that it plays out in the very culture of their nations. Because we don't know the real God, it shows in the foundations of our culture, economy, education, families, religion, arts and entertainment, government, media. It shows in all seven mountains. Every area of our culture seems to send a message that undermines God's true nature, exalting our ways as better than His. So not only did Satan tempt Adam and Eve into a choice that caused us to forever doubt God's goodness, thus undermining trust and intimacy with Him, but he also continues the war by using the very cultures of the world to defame God's true character. He attacks individually, and on a global level. Therefore, we must be convinced that this war over the true identity of a God who is good must be waged on an individual level as well as a worldwide level. This is our quest, to be personally convinced of God's goodness to such a degree that we display it in the nations through every place of cultural influence." This task is too great for us, of course, but God, like any good father, gave us more stake in the game than we really should have had. But it's all because he wants the victory to be seen in a way that we won't just rejoice for God, but we'll rejoice with him. As much as your kids love you, they're never as excited for you as when they have participated with you in a victory. God doesn't want just a happy ending. He wants a celebration. This podcast was made available by contributions from listeners like you. To donate, go online to restore7.org. Thank you.